You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Well, it's a cold, dreek day outside, so it seems a perfect time to hear another tale from the cosy confines of the airing cupboard. Well, hello. Hello. Well, I don't think I've seen you for a little while in the airing cupboard. No. Last week we had another gentleman in the airing cupboard. Although I haven't, mm. I haven't quite voiced his story yet, but um, I heard about that. Yeah. So all is well with you? All's well, and I'm intrigued to hear what you've got to tell me this afternoon. Well, I am on Twitter, and uh, a friend of mine is a genealogist. And she kindly um, shared a link one day for the airing cupboard. And then since that moment, I have linked with a few of uh, genealogist friends and followers. Of course, genealogy offers a very rich cultivating ground for stories. And Charlie's story was one of those, born of a desire to understand her roots and her family history, her family's story. So in 2016, her father was very ill. He was in intensive care and prognosis was indeed very dire. Time spent with him was precious. And I suppose when you feel that someone is escaping you like sand in your hand would, you try to find a way to stop things, to fix them in time to secure your knowledge of them and your relationship to them. And so Charlie and her dad both decided to take a DNA test. So they were taken onto the wonderful journey of discovery, the discovery of the story of those carrying their genes, the story of those without whom neither of them would have ever come to be. And as she looked at her paternal side, she discovered that all her relatives, as far as she could push back her research, they all came from this tiny little village in Dorset called Tolpuddle, a tiny little place, merely a few streets. Now she had never heard of this place, but as it transpired, Tolpuddle was very significant and well-known for its martyrs. The Tolpuddle martyrs were a group of six agricultural laborers who were convicted of swearing a secret oath as members of the Friendly Society of Agricultural Laborers in 1834. They had protested against the gradual lowering of agricultural wages by powerful landowners the society had been declared unlawful and the six laborers had been deported to Australia. So following their deportation, there was an uproar in England and acts were passed in Parliament marking the very beginnings of trade unions and the six were eventually pardoned and brought back to the UK. As Charlie researched that side of the family, she found out that her family were the blacksmith of Tolpuddle. 
and they must have worked and lived and been the neighbors and been part of the martyr's life. Maybe had they discussed the lowering wage issue in Charlie's ancestors' forge, only history knows. During the few months spent to research this information, Charlie's father's health had slowly and gradually improved. He had come out of hospital and suddenly there was a future again. The journey into their family history and past had been somehow simultaneous to a father's journey to health, recovery and future. Having discovered the toll puddle connection, Charlie decided to visit the place with her father. So on a sunny Saturday morning, Charlie scooped her dad and they drove down to toll puddle for the weekend. As they walked into the pub that first evening, standing in the doorframe at the entrance of the pub was a man, a pint in his hand and a dog at his feet. They had to squeeze past him and both Charlie and her father were struck by his amazing physical resemblance to Charlie's grandfather. They passed the man and didn't speak to him. And to this day, Charlie remains convinced that this man carried a similar DNA to hers. And I couldn't but feel that a little part of her was sad that she hadn't come out of her comfort zone and spoke to the man, as when they walked back to the entrance of the pub, the man had gone and the moment had passed. Charlie and her father visited the farm where the family had lived all those years ago and they had tea with the actual owners and they walked and talked in the ancestors' house, rested their backs against their ancestors' walls. And then they walked to the village church. In the graveyard, they found stones engraved with their family's name. And as Charlie made her way up the aisle of the little church, she felt moved, overcome by a strong emotion. There, in the sunlight that was coming through the clear glass of the church's windows, was a font a baptismal font, the font where her ancestors had been baptized. And as she ran her hands onto the carving of the stones, she felt this extraordinary energy. And she basked in this moment of comfort and beauty, where she felt all was in order. She was standing still, her family history was almost pulsing through the stone under her hand, and there, not quite in a field of vision but feeling his presence, was her father, her dad, who only a few months before had been lying extremely poorly in intensive care as she was praying life to give them just a little more time together. Her ancestors and her father, her past and very much her present. And she felt immensely thankful for the gift of that moment. 
Charlie also looked at a mother's side of her family. And there she uncovered a wonderful story. Her great-grandfather was educated in a boarding school in London. He was a very young boy at the time, maybe eight, nine, ten years old. The family was from Newcastle in Tyne and Weir. And the boy's father was a captain in what was to become the Merchant Navy. Sometimes his wife, the boy's mother, would accompany her husband on some of his voyages. The parents would sail away, leaving the child behind. On this particular voyage, in 1869, the captain boarded his ship, the Acastus, with his wife and their baby daughter. The boy would carry on with his all-important education in London, and the family would be back a few months later. The ship sailed out of Newcastle and was bound for Cape Town. There is no details as to what happened, but tragically, just off the Isle of Scilly, the ship was lost. All hands were lost. There were no survivors. The young boy, now orphaned, was summoned into the headmaster's office and was told that now that there were no one to pay his school fees, he could no longer be educated at the school. The child was all alone, and before anyone could lay claim on him, he walked out into the streets of London. He knew his father had connections in Liverpool, and although the child had been born in Tynanwea, 200 miles further north, that is where he was going to go. And the family legend says that this little boy, aged 8, 9 or 10, walked by himself and made his way up all the way to the city of Liverpool. No one knows how long that took him, but we can only imagine the hardships that those little legs would have endured. And he made it to Liverpool. And there the records show that he was taken into the household of a family. And again, the records shows that a few years later, he married a girl who carried the same surname than the family who had welcomed him. Maybe a cousin. No one will ever know for sure what truly happened to him. But what Charlie's family does know is that this marriage was a long and prosperous one that the young boy grew into an influential man who did very well for himself, securing wealth and leaving his family in a comfortable situation for generations to come. And Liverpool became the basket of that side of Charlie's family. So Charlie's grandfather was really the first generation to move down to London, where Charlie's own life story takes root. He had fallen in love and he had married a girl and he had started a new life with her down south. And Liverpool was somehow forgotten. So after this research and the uncovering of her own link to this northern city, her memory started resonating in her. In the 1990s, Charlie had taken a trip to Liverpool with her family and there she had felt a very strong feeling of familiarity, of comfort and ease. That sensation had really surprised her at the time, 
and it had stayed with her. She said that she felt that she had come home somehow. Now, there was still one side of Charlie's family history that needed investigating. She had always known that her paternal grandmother was of Jewish descent. Her grandmother is in her 90s now, and she's still alive today, but sadly, she has dementia, and she cannot tell her any more of her stories. But one name that Charlie remembered very well, for having heard it many times in her childhood, was the name of her granny's cousin, Annalisa. Indeed, her grandmother's parents had come over from Germany to the UK in 1880. They had established themselves in London, but the rest of the family had remained in Germany. Her grandmother and her cousin Annalisa had retained a strong bond, although both girls were obviously living on the opposite side of the channel. Charlie's grandmother had always known that Annalisa had disappeared during the Holocaust, but she had never been able to find out exactly what had happened to her. With the birth of the internet, a lot of the Nazi records were gradually scanned and put online, and so, quite easily, Charlie found the trace of Annalisa and learned of her devastating fate hers and that of all her close relatives, all the way to the exact date of her death. In the Berlin Museum, she found a portrait of Annalisa, painted when she was 18. And Charlie mourned. She mourned for her granny's little cousin, for her family, for the incomprehensible suffering of the race with which she was sharing her DNA. And then one day she went to Bath to spend a week with her husband's family, a great big group of them, her parents-in-law, her husband's brother, his wife and all their children. It was one of those relaxed weeks where everyone does what pleases them. The weather wasn't always the best, so Charlie found herself sitting at the kitchen table with her laptop working on her genealogy. She was joined by her sister-in-law. She was really interested by Charlie's research and she said she would love to find out about her own roots. So Charlie told her to go and fetch her laptop and once both girls were sitting side by side in the warmth of the kitchen, Charlie got her set up on the genealogy website for which she had a subscription and so that she could log in and access the wealth of information. The girls were working side by side at the kitchen table. The house was quiet, just the sound of the rain on the windows and the dripping tap in the sink. Charlie was uncovering more harrowing details about a Jewish family's fate. The face of Annalisa was at the forefront of her mind. And that is when it happened. There, on the screen, in black and white, was the story of her sister-in-law's family. It had been ever so easy to track. It had been 
ever so well documented. Her grandfather had been born in Germany. He had fought the Second World War as a German soldier. Her great uncle had been a member of the Luftwaffe. He was quite a recognizable figure. The girls read the information together, shoulder to shoulder, heads bent down on the same laptop screen, and looked at each other, amazed at how things would have been between both their families only 75 years before, and they embraced into a big and tender cuddle where the actions of others long ago had no place, no hold anymore. And as they cuddled, the tap dripped in the kitchen sink, and with each of its rhythmic drip, a second of time and history was inexorably ebbed away. And here they were, both sisters-in-law, now part of one united family, and the children's blood carrying part of the very same story. Mm. Yeah, it's very moving. It would have been a small crumb of comfort for those, for the girls in the concentration camp and the Luftwaffe to think that their descendants would be sitting shoulder to shoulder 75 years later. Yeah. Looking at that. Yeah. Mm. Um, Charlie told me how much she really loved her journey of discovery into a family history. And um, somehow she wanted to, to record her findings, and this is, this is what she said to me. At the beginning of this conversation, I was saying about how I decided I wanted to do something to mark, to commemorate um, my ancestry, my Jewish ancestry, and the people that were killed, in particular, Annalisa and her family. And I would thought about a tattoo. And I, our, our family surname was Hirsch. And that translates as stag or deer. And I had in my head that I would like to have a stag. And in between the stag's antlers would be the Star of David. And um, that this stag would perhaps be encased in a heart. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, I really want to recognize all the bits of my family. And so I drew a sketch of and I have no artistic talent but I drew a sketch of what I wanted which was a heart and at the base of the heart at the point is the stag's head and in between his antlers is the star of David and then behind the stag are waves and on those waves is a boat and a boat that represents the seafarers in my family the Thompsons um and on the on the sails of the boat, I wanted to have a horseshoe, which would represent my Tolpuddle blacksmith family. 
And then behind the waves, I really wanted to have the liver buildings, such an important focal point in Liverpool, um, a place where people coming and going from Liverpool, all the generations um, who worked at the docks, they would have all been very familiar with it. And then I felt like something was missing. And behind the ships, behind the sea, I've drawn some mountains and those mountains represent Canada, which was where my paternal cousins lived and where we spent a lot of time in the summers. And it was a place where I could really be free as a child and build memories. And it was just a really, really important place to me growing up. And so I wanted them to be represented too. So all this was encased in a heart. And when I initially drew it, uh, I drew roots coming off the bottom of the heart, but actually when it got drawn out, it didn't look quite right. So my husband's brother is an amazing artist. And so I showed him my rubbish children's like drawings and he drew it out for me. And I, I love that because it's the family now, the family I have chosen for myself who has brought together with his talents the family that I have, my family background. And so I went to a local tattooist um, and they tattooed it for me on my thigh. And, and I'm so pleased. And every time I look at it, it just reminds me of who I am and where I come from and all these people that have helped make me me but also the future and my children's future and the fact that we are made up of our history but it doesn't it doesn't have to define us what people have done in the past doesn't define us I heard something actually someone tweeted it and it said I was rushing around suddenly I heard my ancestors behind me be still they said you are the result of the love of thousands. Well, that's fantastic, Charlie. Thank you for sending that in. Yeah, I must thank Charlie for letting me voice her story. Um, and also I must add that if any of you would like to see the tattoo and see what it looked like, there is an image of it on our Instagram page or on our Facebook page and I think also on, on Twitter. So just have a look for the airing cupboard on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you will find it. You'll recognize the logo. And uh, I believe this is the penultimate episode of the, this series, oh, yeah. is that not, right? Not penultimate episode altogether, just a penultimate episode of this series of the airing cupboard, yes. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have another episode in two weeks time and then we're going to have a little break. Uh, I will voice a special episode for Christmas. Christmas special. Yes, a Christmas special indeed, because I've received a lovely story. And I just, I will have to voice it at Christmas. I do love a Christmas special. Um, so in the meantime, really what I would ask listeners to do is that on my website, which is theairingcupboard.org, there is a space there for people to leave the email address so that they can get some updates as to what the Aaron Cupboard will do 
in the very near future. So that's the airingcupboard.org and just follow the link to um, get updates. It's quite straightforward really. So the airing cupboard should be starting again in um, the end of the winter, early spring. In the meantime, please keep on sending me stories. I absolutely love receiving them and without stories, there would be no airing cupboard. So, have you got a story? <laughs> no? No. <laughs> yes. So, I'm sure our friend here will have a story in the spring. So, thank you so much for tuning in. And until we meet again in the airing cupboard, goodbye. Goodbye.